Great, well now it's time for us to hear our first Bible reading. So if you'd like to take open your Bibles in front of you and turn to Matthew chapter 2 as Ruth comes to read to us. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, do have that uh, passage open in front of you, either in the Bible itself, 974 was the page, or on your screen if that's how you prefer to follow it. Before we look at it together, let's just pray. Loving Father, as we read again these very familiar words 
we pray that they will speak to us afresh and speak powerfully of the God who sent our Saviour, of the Lord Jesus who came to live and die for us and the one in whom we need to put our trust this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you're a person who rather likes to be in control. Uh, That might not be something you publicly admit to, but uh, some of us do. Maybe you feel that control is good, and particularly good as long as you have it. Uh, Perhaps, on the other hand, you're the opposite, simply not interested in control. If others want it, let them have it. And when all said and done, is control a good thing or a bad thing? Imagine you're talking to your friend Steve, and Steve works in air traffic control. And one day he says to you, oh, I don't believe in giving pilots instructions. They know what to do. I just let them get on with it. They all seem to get down somehow or other. Is that okay? On the other hand, your friend Rosie is married to a man who demands to control every detail of her life, her work, her money, and her friendships. Is that okay? These last verses in Matthew 2 confront us with the whole issue of control. And the first person we meet in verse 16 is a king who's lost control. Herod the Great, we've been meeting him for several Sundays as we worked our way through Matthew 2. He is, as has been said before, in many ways a puppet king. And though he was installed as king over Judea, technically king of the Jews, he was not, of course, ethnically Jewish. By descent, he was an Edomite. And uh, the word that's often used in the Bible is Idumean, which is the same thing, just what the Greeks called Edomites. Uh, He'd made a terrible decision in the Roman Civil War. He'd he'd backed the wrong horse, he'd backed the wrong side, and he'd supported Mark Antony, uh, and found, of course, that then he had to, might have had to pay the penalty of being on the losing side. And terrified that he'd be removed from power, he'd rushed to Rome to pledge himself faithfully, loyally, to the victorious Octavian, who later, of course, rebranded himself as Augustus. And with huge bribes and outrageous promises, he'd essentially bought his kingship. The very epitome of a man desperate for power and control. The great irony of this story, in fact there are many ironies in this story, it's full of them, is that the man so utterly obsessed with control had actually lost control. First of all, he'd, as we see in this story, he'd lost control of the wise men. When the wise men arrived with their news of a newborn king of the Jews, he simply set out, very predictably, to remove the threat and regain control. But of course, to do that, he he needed two bits of information. First of all, he needed to know where the child was. He couldn't kill him if he couldn't find him. The wise men themselves didn't know precisely where the new king was. That's why they'd initially, of course, gone to the wrong place. They'd gone to the palace in Jerusalem. And it was Herod's own experts, his wise men, who told them that the right answer, in fact, was Bethlehem because of what the scriptures had said in Micah. 
and even more worrying for Herod, because of course everyone knew that Bethlehem had other associations. Bethlehem had also been the birthplace of Israel's greatest ever king, David. And it still left him, of course, with his second question. He needed to know when the child was born, so that he knew what age child he was supposed to be killing. That's why in verse 7 it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. The time elapsed since the star, and that moment, of course, would kind of bracket the age of the child, which it turned out was roughly two years old, that or perhaps a little less. So armed with the information he needed, he decided to let the wise men do the legwork for him. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But it turned out he didn't have control of the wise men after all. Somebody else did. God did. And they hadn't come back to bring him word because God had other plans and he'd warned them. And this certainly wasn't how Jesus was going to die. So as we heard last week from verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You have to wonder how long Herod waited for them. He wouldn't want to have been there in that room as he paced up and down and up and down. And frustration grew and anger built. We can imagine the fury getting greater and greater. And by the time he realized the wise men weren't coming back, he was apoplectic with rage. Verse 16 says it very calmly. Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Herod wasn't the nicest of people at the best of times, but a furious Herod was something to avoid at all costs. The great deceiver had been deceived. He'd been publicly made to look an utter fool. And of course, naturally, somebody had to suffer for it. Heads must roll, face had to be saved. And at all costs, the threat had to be destroyed. And so the dreadful command was given. Go to Bethlehem and kill every single male child you find under the age of two. Bethlehem wasn't far away. It's roughly five miles down the road, about the same distance from here to perhaps the north of Tunbridge. It wouldn't take them long to get there. A soldier on horseback could easily do that in half an hour. It felt easy. It felt like a foregone conclusion, really. But if Herod thought he'd regained control, he was wrong. It got worse. Because he hadn't just lost control of the wise men. He'd lost control of the child, too. For all his murderous plans, the one single child Herod wanted got away. But unnumbered innocent children, of course, fell to Herod's rage. We don't know how many children died in and around Bethlehem. Nobody counted, and Herod didn't care. But Herod hadn't just lost control of the wise men and the child he wanted. Ultimately, and perhaps most tragically of all, he lost control of himself. The great paradox in Matthew 2 
is the man who lived for control was himself out of control. A man who had ten marriages, killed his favourite wife and her mother, and then several of his own sons, and for whom pogroms, like the one in Bethlehem, were simply his personal management style. The Roman historian Josephus says this of Herod, He was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally and a slave to his passions. What a contrast to what we're called to be as Christians. Not slaves to our passions, but servants of Christ. Not controlling others, but having self-control. But if ultimately Herod was out of control, and who'd lost control. Matthew shows us a kind of kingship that is the exact opposite of his. He shows us a king and a God who's in control. The contrast couldn't actually be more stark, could it, between a puppet king who can't, basically, and a true king who not only can, but did. From the beginning, Matthew has been showing us God's control in two different ways. There was his beforehand control leading up to this moment. And then there is his hands-on control throughout this moment. For hundreds of years, the prophets had foreseen and foretold Jesus' coming. According to the scriptures is one of the great recurring motifs of Matthew's gospel. The star shone according to the scriptures. The birth was in Bethlehem, according to the scriptures. Jesus was a descendant of David, according to the scriptures. And he went into Egypt, according to the scriptures. So it's no surprise that in this morning's verses, it's the slaughter of the innocent children in Bethlehem, tragic as it is, that is now also according to the scriptures. And he quotes the prophet Jeremiah in verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and a loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Perhaps we hear a distant echo of the death of Egypt's firstborn sons at the Exodus. And a little reminder that just as Pharaoh utterly failed to kill Moses as a baby... So Herod conspicuously failed to kill Jesus. But when Jeremiah actually wrote those words, it wasn't, of course, reminiscence. It was a warning. A warning of imminent tragedy. Because of their unfaithfulness, Israel would face slaughter at the hands of the Babylonians. Rachel was Jacob's wife. The children of Israel were partly her children. So when Nebuchadnezzar kills them in their thousands, she is poetically weeping. But now in Matthew, these words have found their full and their final fulfillment. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. So as Herod massacres all those little boys there, she is once again weeping for her children. God's purposes are not being thwarted by Herod. They're actually being fulfilled. What's more, they're a picture of his greatest purpose in sending Jesus. 
Those words out of Egypt back in verse 15 were speaking now of a greater release from slavery, a new God-given freedom and a new citizenship. Out of Egypt is a picture of delivering grace. In fact, everything that Jesus came to do. God's call to us here this morning is an out of Egypt call. Even in this last verse, there is another fulfillment of God's promise, another show of God's control as the family returns, not to Bethlehem, but northwards, to Nazareth and Galilee. And Isaiah 9, of course, had foretold it. Galilee of the nations, he had said. And Matthew comments in verse 22, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. The God who is in control. It's worth noting in passing that someone, that calling someone a Nazarene in those days meant they were someone actually of no account, someone to look down on. Uh, Think of Nathaniel's reaction in John chapter 1 when Philip tells him the Messiah is actually Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Nazareth? snorts Nathaniel. Can any good thing come from there? When the God came to earth incarnate, he didn't take the highest place. He took the lowest. Not warrior king, but suffering servant. Philippians 2 says it perfectly, doesn't it? Though he, that is Jesus, was in the form of God, he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God would fulfill his redemption plan, not through majesty and pomp and grandeur, but through chosen weakness and servanthood and death. The challenging truth is that that's what he calls us to as well. It's Matthew again who in chapter 16 gives us Jesus' own words on the subject. If anyone would come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life doesn't just begin at the cross. It is the way of the cross. But if the fulfillment of all those scriptures shows us God in control leading up to this moment... It's the dreams of this narrative that God shows us his hands-on control throughout the moment. That the God who has planned from ages past is actually still at work. He hasn't set up the situation and then moved on. He's actively at work still within it. In a dream, he'd already directed the wise man to go home without returning to Herod. And it was in a dream that he told Joseph to escape with his wife and family to Egypt. And now in verse 19 and 20, he speaks again. Our speaking God, of course. The longed for command finally comes. But when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And again, we see the irony. The baby who was meant to be killed is alive. And the king, so determined to stay alive, is dead. Somehow, the last word is always God's. And as we step into the unknowns of a new year, we don't have to fear as unbelievers fear. We don't have to feel overwhelmed by the threats and the dangers. Even the challenges that come from exile, as they did in this story. We can live our lives at peace, knowing what Matthew is telling us. Our God is still in control. He is still fulfilling his purpose. He is still keeping his promises. But now the narrative that began on a cosmic scale, putting a new star in the sky, bringing wise men hundreds of miles to a king's palace, finally ends on a rather more intimate note. Just a mum, a dad, a young child, and for them, it's simply time to go home. After a king who lost control and a God who is in control, in verses 19 to 23, we last of all see a family that is letting God have control. When Herod the Great died in AD 4, it was his son, Archelaus, who inherited the throne. But if anyone was rash enough to heave a sigh of relief that the old regime was over, they soon changed their mind. Archelaus was as bad, if not worse, than his father. At least his father had been vaguely competent. Archelaus wasn't even that. He was so bad that when in AD 6, two years after acceding, he travelled to Rome just to get his reign ratified, Rome actually banished him entirely, sent him to Gaul, I believe and split his kingdom into three parts and installed a Roman prefect to take charge of it all. That's why Pilate was there at the other end of the story of Jesus. And what's more, backed up by the might of the 10th legion which was installed in Jerusalem. But for all that, Herod's death still made it time for the family to come home. To them, of course, not knowing what lay ahead, it would have seemed safe. But God knew better Jerusalem would not be safe. They needed to go north to Nazareth. This was the very last instruction of this whole narrative for Joseph and his family. And everything now depended on whether he and they would obey it. I suppose anyone who picks up a Bible has God's instructions. The question is always, will we listen and will we obey? It's one thing, isn't it, to stand up in church and call Jesus Lord. It's entirely another to let him be Lord in our lives. I'm sure we all want to see God at work in our families in 2023. And Matthew's great theme is always the kingship of Jesus. But the challenge for us personally and individually is do we trust him enough to actually let him have that kingship. The great thing about Joseph and Mary is that from beginning to end, they did. It was never easy, not even from the very beginning. And it wouldn't get easy or comfortable. And repeatedly, 
They had to be brave enough to step out again and again in faith to obey God. So as we leave them at the end of this chapter, they are obediently setting out for a whole new life in Nazareth. They lived in an uncertain and threatening world. So do we. But our true safety doesn't depend on that world and what it does. They knew what we must know, that just like this story, it depends on what God has already done for us and on what day by day he is able to do in us. In a world that's lost control, we need the God who is in control and we need to let him have control in our lives. Whether you see this Sunday as the last installment of Christmas, perhaps, and the decorations soon to come down, or the first step into a new year, we need to put our hand in the hand of the King who came to rescue us, to offer us cleansing and forgiveness and new life. In the end, it all depends on who is in control. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer this morning that in each one of our lives as we gather here, you may be our King and our Lord. Father, we willingly give you control of our lives in all that lies ahead. Thank you that you are a God who knows and loves and cares. You are a God who always keeps his promises. A God who cares for his children. Lord, we pray that we may be obedient children living day by day with our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.